I'm happy that I've been able to somehow bring all three of these entities at Oxford together. I've been teaching uh, on the master's program of, of uh, international human rights and uh, co-summer school program, the course of international criminal law, and I know how difficult it is for Oxford people to talk to Oxford people, more or less projects, so I'm, I'm happy to act as a, uh, a force field of convergence for, if nothing else, just for today. So we are going to be speaking, I'm going to be speaking as a matter of fact, and hopefully you'll be speaking afterwards with some questions about the Lubanga case, but uh, let me give a tiny bit of uh, truth in lending. I'm using Lubanga as a pretext to speak about something else. But first, let's start with Lubanga. It was the first case at the International Criminal Court, and as you know now, it concluded in May of 2012, which almost makes it an ancient case, but since there is no other completed case that led to a conviction, one can still get a little bit of leeway still out of Lubanga. And Lubanga, as Jill said, uh, was convicted. He was convicted <coughs> for conscription and enlistment of child soldiers. And I'm going to use that term, and I know that the politically correct term is children associated with armed forces or armed group, but I'm going to do shorthand child soldiers. He was convicted of enlisting and conscripting child soldiers and also convicted of using children to participate actively in the hostilities. Now, Mr. Lubanga was the president of the Union um, Patriotique Congolaise, which is, uh, well, one can say an armed group or a militia or a political uh, group, but let's say it was a non-state entity. And as president, during a very short interim period, two or three years, he had to, in quotes, raise their fighting forces. And for him, a way that he could do that, that was expedient and that would have loyal fighters was to enlist and conscript children. Now, Mr. Lubanga was in charge of this military wing. He raised the level of, in quotes, uh, combatants. And at the trial, he was convicted and sentenced to 14 years. No reactions? Is that a lot? Is that enough? Is that not enough? The judgment um, in terms of the sentencing is on appeal uh, at this very moment. The Lubanga case was important for many reasons, but among those, it's the first case that really gives us a decision concerning uh, victims' reparations. And as you know, the International Criminal Court, very different from the ad hoc tribunals of the Special Court for Sierra Leone, has victim representation. There were about 129 victims who testified from their own legal base with their own legal counsel. Uh, about 34 were girls, 93 uh, were boys or had been girls and boys during the time period of this conflict. And the reparations decisions uh, has been hailed as being a first, although it's been controversial a bit in terms of the actual content of the reparations. But these child soldiers who came to testify, they had to meet a benchmark of having themselves suffered because of the accused Labanga. There were other types of reparations that were more generalized to the community, but these child soldiers suffered in relationship to acts that Labanga had committed. There are also some very important IHL, International Humanitarian Law, holdings regarding these crimes, and let me go over them for you quite briefly. And as I said, I'm setting the scene. First of all, conscription or enlistment 
are two different aspects of how children can become part of an armed group. Conscription is this notion that the child comes up and wants to be part of the group. And enlistment is somewhere where the child has been enlisted, recruited. And we all know from our own layperson's life, you go to a, you know, enlist or enroll in the Army. Uh, conscription is, you know, I'll join. And sometimes we use the word recruitment to kind of cover both of those concepts. Well, one of the things that the court found, and remember, we're talking about persons under 15 years of age. Because under customary national law and under the explicit provisions of the Rome Statute and under the additional protocols, child soldiers are persons who are 15 years of age or younger. Now, why, why cut off at 15? For you historians, there's a lot of historical reasons that that occurs. Uh, during last century, a lot of people left school after the equivalent in the United States of eighth grade. Even today, the Mennonites and the um, uh, Quakers, and I come, not the Quakers, I come from outside of uh, Philadelphia, but the Amish are allowed to leave school after eighth grade. That's considered a reasonable age at which you take on responsibilities of manhood. And that's slightly where we have this descendant concept of 15 and below, or children after 15, you're an adult. But now, international law, human rights law, and criminals seem to be moving that edge toward 18. For example, the Special Court for Sierra Leone was allowed to try persons who were children. The prosecutor took the decision not to. Under Convention for the Rights of the Child, a child is someone up until the age of 18 years old. And under the optional protocol for the Convention for the Rights of the Child, we're looking at 18 and below would be considered a child soldier. But right now, we're caught in that in-between netherworld. So when I'm talking about child soldiers today, I'm talking about persons who are 15 years of age younger, okay? So these 15, younger than 15 year olds were conscripted or enlisted. And what the court held was that these were continuous crimes, meaning that when you're conscripted or when you enlist, the crime doesn't happen that moment and stop. Mm -hmm. It's not an act. The crime continues until you become 15 and therefore you're no longer a child, or until you are no longer part of the armed group, <coughs> irrespective of how you leave or disengage yourself, or due to death. Your crime stops at death, and you might die before you reach the age of 15. So conscription and enlistment are continuing crimes. They're not one-off uh, crimes. Hold that notion. The other thing that the court found is that children cannot consent cannot consent to be enlisted or conscripted. You say, oh, contradiction. You just said conscription was when you join you know, voluntarily. Well, the court held that a child is psychologically too immature to consent to either conscription or enlistment. And what are they psychologically immature about? About death. They really can't conceive of what it is to die and what it is to cause other persons to die. And this psychological immaturity, the court says, means that consent is just, it's evidentiary, could be present, but it's legally, it's irrelevant. So therefore, Mr. Lebanu could not say, well, he consented. Um, she, she agreed to be a soldier, okay? And then, the last thing I'd like to tell you in terms of the legal holdings was that youth to participate actively. We have really three different crimes, but two different crimes, conscription and enlistment, 
or the use of children to participate actively in hostilities. And use to participate actively in hostilities doesn't presuppose that you've been enlisted or recruited. You can just spontaneously be used to participate actively in hostilities, and that in itself is a crime. Okay, so there are three crimes. And the chamber used a sliding scale of finding out whether your participation was direct or indirect. Did your participation put you directly in the way of harm, or was it indirect participation, and therefore you were not directly in the way of harm? And the harm I'm talking about is what? It's the harm from the opposing or the enemy side, being able to be targeted, being a military objective as opposed to being a civilian object. I'm speaking to IHL people here? Great. So when the court is looking about active participation, placing children, using them, they did an indirect or direct type of test. So those are some of the, I think, uh, interesting holdings and very notable holdings of the Labanga case. Now let me tell you um, some of the things that were not in the Labanga case. One of the things not in the Labanga case was sexual violence. Oh yes, there was evidence of sexual violence. It was just sputtering out. Almost every other child soldier got up, spoke about sexual violence, but it had not been charged. It had not been legally characterized. <coughs> was not taken into consideration. So therefore, sexual violence was not part of the de deliberation to find out factually or legally to determine whether someone had been conscripted or enlisted. We didn't say, oh, this person was sexually violent, that is evidence of conscription or enlistment. Sexual violence was not part of the observations or the holding to find out whether that was part of an ongoing nature of any of these crimes. And sexual violence was not used in the termination of whether a child who had been used to participate actively in hostilities, directly or indirectly. Well, uh, how, how would this come up? I think if any of you have read the Labanga case, you'll see that there's a vociferous dissent, in particularly talking about girls who were in the army who were used as sexual, and I'll put, you know, entre guillemets, or what do you call these, um, inverted commas, right? Were they not being used to participate? Was this actively being used to participate? Was this direct harm or indirect harm? So, the other thing about the Labanga case is that it originally had been charged as an international armed conflict. But the judges decided that they were going to classify or characterize the conflict as a non-international armed conflict, i.e. our common Article Three internal armed conflict. So there you have in very broad strokes Labanga and a bit of his holdings. But I'd like to talk about the absence of Labanga, the absence of sexual violence evidence. And I think that in this absence, that was really the source of an outcry when the charging first came down. But as I said afterwards, when the judge Odio Benito from Costa Rica led her dissent, I find this absence of the charges to be somewhere revelatory. And it allows us to take a little bit of a hypothetical, not leap, but what I would call an exploration. The absence of sexual violence, but also if we could reimagine Lubanga as an international armed conflict and not a non-international armed conflict, 
the question that Judge Odi Benita raises in the dissent becomes quite pertinent. She says, how could you not take sexual violence into account when you're measuring whether the children were harmed directly or indirectly because if the spirit of the Rome Statute is about protecting civilians, children, women, and anyone who has an access to war or crimes against humanity, protecting them, are we only concerned about protection from the other side, them not being targeted? Or should we be concerned about them being protected from their own side? She asked us, in some ways, to look at what I call the Andy Warhol you know, negative portraits. You know, what does that blue stripe really mean in Sophia Loren's face, you know, or Jack Yonas's uh, face? And it is that opposite that's going to reveal something I think that's quite telling. If we look at international armed conflict, it makes us say that the feminist critique of international law is very present. Because the feminist critique makes us look at questions of gender. What happens to girls, women, boys, and men? It makes us look at the very foundations and structures of international humanitarian law and ask certain questions. And Judge Odebinito was asking really from her point of view, but I think we can say from a theoretical feminist <coughs> critique of international humanitarian law, what is your law for? if it's not to protect humans. Well, let's, let's say this way, because we know really Haley, our other feminist critique, who's told us let feminism take a break right now, she says, look, feminist theory is kind of like you know, all broken up. We can only give maybe a partial critique, and we have some very imperfect and partial insights. Hillary Charlesworth has been telling us that, look, we feminists serious, we like to talk, but we're basically talking with ourselves. Either no one else is listening or no one else is interested in our conversation. And that's why today I'm very happy that I have three different entities that aren't necessarily feminists. Because I'd like to broaden this conversation about the very structural foundations of international humanitarian law, looking at it from a feminist lens. And that's why I call this speech Beyond Gender beyond gender with the child soldiers. So, now that the roost is up, what am I here to talk about? I'm here to question, under international armed conflict, is our abiding paradigm meaning that a war crime has to be committed by one party against the soldiers or nationals, <laughs> civilians, of another party with the presumption that they have a different nationality. I mean, that's what war crimes are about, right? Geneva 1, 2, 3, uh, 4. One state has reciprocal obligations to the other states in terms of protected persons. And where does a child combatant fall within this realm of protection? Well, when you look at it uh, quite closely, this reciprocity from Geneva does already have a couple of cracks in it. Remember when we go from the 1949 conventions to the additional protocols in 1977, we're already willing to say, okay, international armed conflict is not always international armed conflict, okay? We will allow in colonialism, wars of 
colonial struggles, will allow on wars of liberation, uh, wars against uh, apartheid. These can all now be considered under the rules of international armed conflict. And technically, those wars could have a war crime committed by a party against a national or a person who is from their same citizen group or national group. How, how, how? You say, how do you do it? Colonialism. Let's take the easy, not easy example of Algeria. The Algerian war, France fought against <coughs> Algerian citizenships, but part of the Algerian citizenry, such as the Algerian Jews, had been declared French citizens. But war crimes could have been committed against them because A, it was a colonial war, and we weren't going to make the tight distinction of the other, the enemy, being from a different state. And the same holds true if there is a war in terms of apartheid. Apartheid usually happens within one state. So this paradigm of war crimes are always against the enemy national already has a little bit of lessening, a little bit, if I recall, cracks or two zeros. But the issue I want to bring up is slightly different. It's not your tattage issue where you have wars that could be internationalized, meaning that Serbia has been effectively controlling uh, um, Serbska and has internationalized Serbska's war against Bosnia. Then you could say, oh, this, the Serbs, the Bosnian Serbs are really not from the same nationality as the Bosnians because they've been internationalized by Serbia. My case is a little bit harder, and somewhere is, I think, a bit more compelling. I'm talking about child soldiers who ostensibly come <coughs> from the same side as the armed group for which they're fighting or of which they're a part. And the fundamental question becomes, what happens when you commit a crime against a child soldier from your own side? A war crime, not just a crime. Okay. Now let's just walk the child soldier back because at this point we have to admit at least two things under international armed conflict. Um, that child soldier is a combatant. Under international armed conflict, there might be some varying differences under <coughs> non-international armed conflict. Is the child soldier a fighter? Is everyone a fighter or non-fighter or civilian under non-international armed conflict? But under international armed conflict, it's fairly clear that the child soldier, once they're recruited, meaning conscripted or enlisted, are a combatant. And proof of that is that, therefore, they come under Geneva 1. I mean, if they're um, you know, wounded or sick on land. Um, I don't know too many child soldiers who are out at sea, but I think Robert was bringing up over our lunch, uh, about uh, pirates, young pirates, who might be child soldiers, depending on the configuration. So maybe Geneva 2 could apply to them. The shipwrecked. We might have child soldiers who are shipwrecked. And certainly, child soldiers can become prisoners of war with all of the rights and duties that a state who's holding them would owe if they did become a prisoner of war. And child soldiers who might maybe only be used in hostilities, who aren't really soldiers, could come under the Fourth Convention. So their protection is, is, is very classical, very common, protected under one, two, three, or four as combatants. Now, does that give leeway for them being protected against their own side? Now, it, it, it is possible that you could say that, well, 
Well, you, they, it's, it's incongruous. They don't need to be protected against their own side because that's what you have the military code for. That's what you have internal discipline for. If their own side um, does something uh, to them, uh, then you know we'll, we'll turn and find out what would we call that infraction. But that's we're going a little far in saying that's a war crime. And you say, yeah, stop right there, Patty. We, we you know, let's let's stop this. But then you would say, do you mean the very fact that their situation is recognized as illegal under international humanitarian law? The fact that they've been conscripted, that they've been enlisted, their very in situ illegality now prevents any other illegality occurring from them from the same side that has given them or made them in situ illegal. Your perpetrator can only inflict one crime upon you, and that's conscripting or enlisting you or using you in hostilities, and after that, your perpetrator is no longer a perpetrator of the same category? Well, in the special court for Sierra Leone, the prosecutor versus say say, the court said yes. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly right. That's what we're saying. It said that it would be inappropriate, it would be a reconceptualization of the fundamental principle of international humanitarian law to make the perpetrator guilty of other crimes against child soldiers other than conscription, enlistment, and use And I ask you just to take maybe two seconds and think a bit about the types of crimes that the perpetrator could perpetrate under this continuing illegality. The child soldiers stay for a day, five years, 10 years. And the crime configuration that I want to talk about is, is sexual violence. Just to give us a window on what type of illegality could we be talking about. Illegality that's, that's recognized, let's say, as, as a war crime. And I put forward that the sexual violence that occurs with child soldiers is at this point in time something that we have not fully or completely explored or been aware of. And I would like to propose two systems that I see operating with child soldiers. Um, many people seem to be aware that the girls are often used to be, in quotes, and I hate this linguistic camouflage, bushwives has nothing to do with being a wife. It doesn't matter the foliage that you're around. Uh, that girls are often in, enslaved, and part of their enslavement is continual sexual access. And many of those girls um, stay with the armed group and have children. So we have some forced copulations, forced breeding <coughs> going on. Um, many of these girls are susceptible to early abortions, spontaneous <coughs> abortions, death by birth. Uh, they're susceptible, uh, even if they do not complete births, miscarriages, fistulas, uh, in other words, maiming of their intestinal organs. And they are under um, a continual related psychological strain <coughs> of just being a young child having a child and being susceptible to rape. How this often works within um, girl children in the West Africa scenario is that they are picked up and picked out, not just by the soldiers, but by the boy soldiers. They go to girls who they know, who are easier to follow them. And often in the beginning, they're kept in some type of sexual pool, 
kind of like the secretarial pool from the Mad Men movies, you know, or Mad Men TV shows we watch, and the man gets to go by and pick out what secretarial work on this project. So for men in the armed groups that don't have a bushwife, they often pick these girls out of the pool for sexual assault, and then the girls are put back in the pool for the next sexual assault. And if they're, in quotes, lucky in inverted commas again, uh, for survival sex, they might hope to want to be attached to one male in the group, and hopefully the male that has the most power, which means that they'll become more exclusively that male's property, and slavery is exercising uh, the powers of ownership over someone, and not have to be uh, raped, gang raped, forced pregnancies by other men. Often when militias who are comrades, they will share this pool of women among them. And often this pool of young girls, I shouldn't say women, young girls, will be used to reward, but also to punish soldiers who have not performed duties. Now that's the girl's side. But feminism wanna make us look at a gendered lens. What about the boys? What about the sexual violence in the boys? Well, Obviously, boys are, are raped. Um, boys are forced to perform fellatio. But even more vicious than that, young boys quickly learn that they are in a male-dominated domi group that has a sexual hierarchy. And they look and see how does this sexual hierarchy perform. The top people in the sexual hierarchy can have their own bushwife and children. The lower people in the sexual hierarchy, the lower boys, don't even have access to the sexual secretarial pool. And if you want to, in any way, engage in survival sexual acts or techniques or conduct as a perpetrator or as a sexual assault victim slash uh, survivor, you as a boy better learn those codes right away. You better learn how to rape when you're on mission and bring women back so that the pool grows. You need to show your skills, whether it be killing or looting, so that you can start to have access to the pool. That you can inflict sexual harm in order to make your masculinity go up and therefore possibly have access to more girls. And as your military rank goes up and your sexual prowess goes up, it's interwoven, it's interlinked until you can have your own bush wife or set of wives and children. So that's the harm I'm talking about coming from the same side. So that goes back to the question, is the fact that you are in an illegal situation of having been enlisted and conscripted, therefore is stopped any other legality that the perpetrator who placed you in that insidious situation can now do in terms of other harm. And I view sexual violence as an example, but it could be killing, other forms of maiming, or any of the other war crimes that are listed. Now, when we get back to our international humanitarian law paradigm, the answer, of course, uh, is no. Even though all the sexual assault conduct I've just described certainly has a nexus to an armed conflict, one of the other jurisdictional elements that we need for war crimes. 
So what would IHL propose in this situation? Well, I've come to bring a problem and offer possibly a solution. Under the additional protocol one, it's actually article 77 that talks about children during time periods of armed conflict. And it's under article 77 one, no, 77 two, that it talks about that children are not, are to be refrained from being recruited and are not to take part in hostilities. That's where we get our customary law basis not to conscript and enlist children. Special Court for Sierra Leone has recognized that, even though there's been some divergence of opinion, and the Rome Statute has expressed that in provisions. Even if it's not part of customary law, those states that have signed the Rome Statute have agreed that this will be the law that we will abide by, and that the conventional wisdom is now that that customary law has caught up to the conventional law, and these are solid war crimes, conscription, enlistment, use in hostilities, either directly or whatever. So, Article 77 of Additional Protocol 1 starts off in subsection 1 and says, children shall have special protection. The party shall protect children, offer them special protection, including indecent assault in all its forms. Well, if you look at the Vienna Convention and just say, let's, let's look at the plain word meaning of that. What does that mean? Well, it probably means that the parties shall offer children shall offer children special protection, and that indecent assault of any kind can't be inflicted upon them. Well, we know what parties mean, particularly under international armed conflict. But what does special protection mean? For those of you who've looked at CEDAW but looked at IHL, you understand that special protection are certain special measures under international humanitarian law that are given to protected persons, um, such as what one can do in terms of regulation of not being able to have the death penalty uh, be inflicted upon women uh, who are pregnant. That's a special protection. No adverse discrimination based upon sex <coughs> or health. So special protections are types of special measures. But what is indecent assault? Well, indecent assault and that as a technical term, is found in Article 27 of the Fourth Geneva Convention that says that, that talks about civilians, and it particularly talks about when civilians are in the hands of the other power, the other state, and that women shall be protected against rape and forced prostitution, any form of indecent assault, or any other form of indecent assault. So this other form of a decent, indecent assault relates back to rape or enforced prostitution or types of illicit sexual conduct. Uh, where else do we find this uh, notion of indecent assault? Well, if you look at Article 75 of Additional Protocol 1, it's the fundamental guarantees. It's kind of like the grave breaches of Additional Protocol 1. And under subsection to B of Article 75, it talks about outrages upon personal dignity, things you cannot commit, including any form of indecent assault. And once again, if you go to Article 76, right before Article 77 in Additional Protocol 1, it talks about the special protection for women. And again, mentions rape, prostitution, or indecent assault. So 
So plain language meaning of Article 77 as it relates to children must mean that the parties cannot inflict indecent assault upon children. And then it says, as I said before, we have to refrain from recruiting children. And it says, but in the event that children are used in hostilities, athletes participate in hostilities, and fall into the hands of the other power, the detaining power, the other party, it says the special protection continues. Not that the special protection starts once you're in the hands of the opposite party but it continues, which makes you say, well, where did it begin? It began when the children were with the party that was even their own size, I would argue. So if there is, under Article 77, under Additional Protocol 1, which is recognized basically as customary law, that there is a continuation of protection against indecent assault even when that child soldier or that child who participates in hostilities falls into the hands of the detaining power. Well, you would say, well, basically, that doesn't have to really be covered by Article 77 because you've got that whole Geneva Convention 3, you know, and the third Geneva Convention is about prisoners of war. And if the child is a combatant, the child falls under prisoners of war. So you're just kind of being redundant, aren't you? Because prisoners of war, of course, they're protected from sexual violence inflicted by the other side. <clears throat> well, where does that come under the Prisoner of War Convention? Well, it starts in 1929 under Article 3. 1929, there's big drafting in the Geneva Conventions, in particular as it related to prisoners of war. And the German delegates suggested that we should add into this 1929 convention that women should be protected, women should be given all consideration due their sex, which is kind of like Victorian code language to say that female prisoners of war should not be raped. Doesn't mean you could rape the men. Just made it very explicit that female prisoners of war would be given all consideration due their sex. And that became quite understood when you look into the commentaries of Rasmussen that that meant protection against sexual violence. Then we come up to 1949, and lo and behold, in the first convention, and in the second convention, and back to the third convention, that phrase is repeated under Articles 12, 12, and 13, 14. Women should be given all consideration due their sex, meaning that the opposite party, the opposite power, cannot sexually assault the women, okay? And that's why, even though I'd love to take all the credit that, yes, I had ad hoc tribunals, we made rape a war crime, and I did it in a forensic case. Rape has been a war crime. I mean, it's, it's one of the oldest, it's one of the core crimes, war crimes that exist, and particularly for the civilian population. But what's interesting from the 29 convention up to the 49 convention, it's reiterated that combatants cannot be sexually violated by the other side. That's, that's a big new thing of the 29 and the 49 convention. But when you look at the Pictet commentaries, official ICRC commentaries, you know, uh, about what does that phrase really mean, you would say, yeah, so the detaining power can't rape women. And they've got a special provision that women are supposed to be guarded only by other women. 
But when you read what Pictet says, he says, you know what, male and female prisoners from the same side are being separated out. And the detaining power is to ensure that females are not assaulted by prisoners of war from their own side. They are protected against sexual assault from their own side and in the hands of the detaining power. <coughs> and I would argue that this precept, this precept under the third convention, which actually dates back to 1929 when we're really starting to understand combatant vulnerability and humane treatment, has to be read into Article 77 when we talk about children as combatants falling into the hands of detaining powers. At that stage, there's special protection against any form of indecent assault. That protection stands even in terms of members from their own party or POWs cannot assault them. You add that together with Article 77.1, knowing that this protection continues when detained, that children have special protection. I would say that the paradigm of war crimes already allows for a fundamental shift in particular when we're talking about children, and in particular when we talk about child combatants. And especially when we understand the nature of a sexual violence, any form of indecent assault, that child combatants can undergo. Well, why hasn't this been written up before? I mean, if it's so hot, you know, let's trot it all out. Well, I think that these are among the things that a feminist critique of international humanitarian law can offer us depending on the doors we enter in and what we see, what is before us when we put on a gendered lens. There are other things that the Labanga case can offer to us. As I mentioned before, this ideal of the constant crime. When we look at enslavement, when we look at what I hate to call forced marriage, inhumane treatment, this notion that it's one off, it was done, oops, that was that 10 seconds. We never think of torture, that the one act, or doesn't most physical torture turn into psychological torture. When we look at this issue of consent and say that a child cannot consent to enlist or conscript because they mentally don't understand death, we understand that at this time period, international humanitarian law, international criminal law, consenting to sexual violence, even for a child, is dependent, other than from the Rome um, statute, on the circumstances in which they find themselves. We don't say a child do not, does not understand gang rapes. A child does not understand being sexually uh, abused with fistula and maimed. International criminal law up until today, apart from what might be a future interpretation of the Rome Statute, has no age cutoff in terms of consent and sexual violence. The most progressive way we look at it is say, oh, Let's look at the circumstances in which the person is. And these are the findings, not only from Rwanda, from the ad hoc Yugoslav Tribunal, Special Court for Sarah Leone, possibly the Rome Statute, will make us interpret unable to give genuine consent, meaning that if you cannot give genuine consent, it's not that your consent is not genuine, you're unable to give it, is the equivalent of consent being just irrelevant for the circumstances or for the act that we're talking about. 
Well, I would like to close here, but with just a, a couple of very, very quick uh, reflections, because there have been a couple scholars that have looked at some of these issues. And as a matter of fact, I think Robert Rowe from Lancaster has talked about friendly fire when you are killed by someone from your own side. Not necessarily that that's a war crime, but that harm does come from our own side. Also, when we talk about, and this is from one of the scholars at Nottingham, Sanjas Suvakumaran, who does male sexual assault, but who also does internal uh, non-international armed conflict, says that the Geneva Conventions from 1854, from 1906, from 1929, really were talking about helping the wounded and the sick, sick irrespective of the nationality, and that all parties had the same obligations to all wounded and victims. And so I come back to where, are these just a couple of partial, imperfect insights? Is this not the very basis of what Geneva, the humanitarian law, the humane part is supposed to be about? Irrespective of the victim, irrespective of the party. And maybe just the example of children, and particularly through a feminist lens, allows us to see what's right in front of us. To conclude, as Hillary Charlesworth would say, I hope we've broadened the conversation, because this is one that we should all be having. Thank you very much.